Hello, welcome to the Levin College of Public Affairs and Education podcast. My name is Dr. Valerie Wright, and I am the Chair and Associate Professor in the Department of Criminology and Sociology. I would like to introduce my guest today. First, we have Dr. Rachel Lavelle, who earned her PhD in Sociology from The Ohio State University and is an Assistant Professor of Criminology and the Director of the Criminology Research Center at Cleveland State University. She is an applied criminologist and methodologist whose research focuses on gender-based violence and victimization, particularly sexual assault, human traffic, and intimate partner violence. She is the co-editor of a new book titled Sexual Assault Kids and Reforming the Response to Rape. Thank you for being here, Rachel. Thanks, Valerie, or Dr. Wright. <laughs> an attorney. Um, Mary Weston earned her law degree from Case Western Reserve University School of Law and is currently an assistant Cuyahoga County prosecutor and supervises the cold case unit that prosecutes rapes and homicides. She has been an assistant prosecuting attorney since 2006 and joined the Cuyahoga County Sexual Assault Kit Task Force when it was formed in 2013. Currently, she is the project manager for the task force, overseeing all aspects of cold case sexual assaults and homicide investigation, making charging decisions, presenting cases to the grand jury, and litigating cases in court and on appeal. Thank you again for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Wright. So let's just jump right in. Dr. Lavelle, first, congratulations to you on the book. Thank you. Could you provide us with an overview of your book and what you think we should know and take away from it? Uh, yes, absolutely. So this is the first book that I've written and first uh, uh, edited volume as well. So um, my co-author and I, uh, she goes by Dr. LR because her name has like 40 letters in it. Um, we wanted to really write the book. We were both researchers working uh, with the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative, which we'll be talking about uh, more today. But we were researchers working in this space and really doing research on and being connected with individuals who were really making transformative change in how sexual assault was, was being treated uh, within the criminal justice system, how victims were being better supported in this. Um, and how this transformation came about through really what is a massive injustice for hundreds of thousands of victims of sexual assault in the United States. So we really wanted to, we, and there's about $200 million being spent federally on this initiative. So we really wanted to be able to kind of capture, you know, uh, where we've been um, with sexual assault kits uh, or where we've been. and what that means and how sexual assault kits are just a symptom of a much larger issue and how the system responds to sexual assault and then capture kind of what the what's being done now and how much better things are going um, in terms of better supporting victims and solving cases and all the ways that these kits are, are really making an impact now and then looking forward to the future about what do we want to see in terms of a better response. So we really envision this book as like a, mem almost like a memorialization of this moment in time, but a, really a call to action moving forward that the public, that academics, that prosecutors, nurses, police officers, um, policymakers, all of these folks, forensic scientists, they all have a role in this and we're all sort of in this together. And that, you know, we say at the end, we really hope that 
we write a different book in 10 years, that there's a different story, a much more transformed approach. And so, um, and so I think we, we, through several chapters and through amazing, um, impactful chapters, we talk about kind of where we've been, what we're doing now, and uh, where we would like to be in the future um, as it relates to sexual assaults and sexual assault kits specifically. So the book <clears throat> addresses how fundamental changes are needed to change our society's response to rape. Can you both talk about this from your own unique ex perspectives? Mayor, uh, Dr. Uh, Mr. West, uh, <laughs> Prosecutor Weston, do you want to go first? Yeah. Um, I think, that, to put it in context, I think it's helpful to talk about kind of how we, like my, the prosecutor's office, became involved in a project like this. And that context here in Cleveland is the story of Anthony Sowell. And most Clevelanders will recall in 2011 when you know, multiple bodies were found in Anthony Sowell's yard and in his house, bodies of women he had lured into, the house, lured into his house with the promise of drugs, and then he killed those women. But what happened as a result of that case making the news is there were women that came forward that said, hey, you know, he did the same thing to me. I survived. I got out of that house and I did everything the one would be expected to do as the victim of a, of, a, of a rape and perhaps an attempted murder, right, is I went to the police, I told them what happened to me, and I expected them to do their jobs. And And, and yet he was still out on the streets to commit these murders. So... Um, there was an investigation done into uh, a review, I would say, more a review of how Cleveland Police Sex Crimes was handling its sex crimes investigations over the years. And it was during that re review that a number, and by a number I mean thousands of rape kits, were discovered in the property room and other areas in the Cleveland Police Department, seemingly never tested, never, never sent to the lab. So... Um, you know, that's when that that's how the task force came into existence. At least, you know, uh, at that point, there was clearly a need to do a number of things at once. Right? We got to test these kits. We got to contact these victims. We have to notify these victims that, that something's happening. And then once those, let's let's walk this through. Right now, we're sending thousands of kits to the lab. Well, we're going to get thousands of responses and and DNA reports, and that means thousands of investigations and prosecutions and so and and so a t an entire team was sort of needed you know you, you need investigators you need victim advocates you need uh, law enforcement you need prosecutors you need lab you need, you need lab analysts you need sexual assault kit, uh, nurses to kind of give you advice and so the task force was formed at that point and it, it, that was how we were, you know, by looking at all these rape kits over the years, like looking at the results of all these rape kits, I think that that is what made it possible to kind of look at what was happening in the past, what is happening now, and what, as you said, fundamental changes are needed to make sure something like this doesn't happen again. By the way, Cleveland was not the only jurisdiction that had this issue. Uh, we were. Uh, it's not a good way to. It's not a happy reason to form partnerships, but it certainly was helpful to form partnerships in other cities, sister cities. We almost called them to learn. Well, you know, Detroit and Memphis and New York City. Like, how are you handling your backlogs, and what's the best way forward? Because there's really no way to learn this, right? Um, other than 
you're just learning it on your own. What's the best way to notify a victim that your case is going to be looked at now 20 years later? I mean, how do you learn about how to have that conversation? It was all all very new to us. And when you talked about, Dr. Rate, when you talk about fundamental change, um, Dr. Rachel, Dr. Lovell's research is so impactful because it does look at what is the results of thousands of these rape kits and what can we learn from that? What can we learn about every aspect of it? Victim notification, investigation. And when you look through this book, there's all these topics are covered. How to notify a victim, how to conduct an investigation, how to um, best interview a suspect where, you know, he committed this crime 20 years ago. Um, This book is chock full of ideas for jurisdictions that may go through the same issues we have. Thank you. I I just want to to follow up a little bit on that. I I think I do this quite a bit that I forget to explain what a sexual assault kit is because uh, it's such a big part of what, you know, like what we know about, but for people who are listening or watching that may not know what a kit is, um, after someone has been sexually assaulted, they go primarily to a hospital or other sort of medical facility where a medical professional takes evidence from the body and from the clothes of the person who is, uh, who is in that hospital, um, to collect DNA, primarily DNA evidence, but other types of evidence as well from, um, the victim. So not only are these kits evidence, important evidence, um, but they're also, you know, like the victim's body is a crime scene. So it's also a very intimate um, collection. And in many ways, it's like what society has kind of placed the burden on victims to do. Like if you're raped, you go to the hospital, you get healthcare you know, some sort of medical help as well for any injuries or STDs, pregnancies, those types of things. But also you go through what can be a long procedure, an intimate procedure to collect this evidence. And then for decades, what we asked victims to do that as a society and then didn't do anything with the evidence that was collected from them um, uh, and just kind of tagged it and put it, you know, on a shelf. Um, and uh, in the book talks about all the different reasons why, you know, we have the issues of untested kits. Um, but th- that's basically what it is. The victims have been have been collected this evidence. They had very strong evidence and uh, for many reasons didn't test it um, until recently. And the funding has been around now with the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative to test those things. But uh, the task force that Mary leads, um, or we're just going to have to, because we, <laughs> I, I, we, uh, it's just too formal. It sounds so formal to use the, the honorifics, um, is working with, uh, you know, they, fo- they started before even the, the, there was federal money to do this. And so, um, one of the oldest kind of task force, um, but when they were doing that, when they formed, they didn't know what was the best way to do this. It had never been done. It was an initiative on a massive scale. Um, and they didn't know what was to come from it. They didn't know the best practices. And that's how we got involved um, when I was at Case Western Reserve University. Um, we were approached by her former boss, um, Prosecutor Tim McGinty, when he started the task force to... Um, as the research partner and he really was uh he in several meetings he said i think what we're doing here is transformative 
there's nothing to go from here, uh, you know, in terms of how to best move forward with how we should set this up, how, how should we investigate cases, how should we prioritize cases. We're seeing some of these rapists having massive criminal histories. These rapes are not quite what we thought they were going to be. There's just so much here. And we need a researcher, an independent, you know, evaluator to come in and do this research and kind of help us see what are some of these bigger pictures. Where should we be putting our resources? What's the best way to contact a victim who gets a knock on her door, his or her door, mostly her in the rape kits, um, 20 years later and says, oh, by the way, we now, you know, we didn't do anything with your case then. We did something now and now we have a name for you. Um, and so that uh, needed a lot of research around that. And so luckily the federal initiative came along. There was money then put forth. Um, uh, and I, I think very smartly from the federal initiative to put research connected to that so we could start to memorialize and start to have these lessons learned. They could be shared across the different jurisdictions. Um, and so that's some of the chapters of, of what we memorialize, how transformation has happened in police departments and prosecutors' offices, um, with forensic nurses, um, with forensic scientists, and as well as how the technology has even advanced in the last 10 years with forensic genetic genealogy helping um, work cases that couldn't have been. And, um, how much DNA and the testing is much faster and cheaper and all these things that have since changed since the kits were first um, collected. So Dr. Lavelle, 20 years is a really long time. Can you speak more about why so many kits were untested in Cuyahoga County and the nation and also why you uh, felt the need to write a book about it? Uh, so the first chapter in the book is written by um, Rebecca Campbell um, and uh, uh, and Hannah Faney, uh, Hannah Faney, who um, and Han uh, Hannah was a graduate student of Becky Campbell's at Michigan State, and, and Becky was one of the first folks doing this even before we were we were doing research in this area, and she worked with um, Detroit and working with their sexual assault kits, as well as a researcher from Sam Houston State, Bill Wells, um, worked with the uh, Houston Police Department. Those were some of the early ones, along with uh, Memphis and New York City. And um, so they wrote the first book because they, they really did much of the transformative work around this. We've also done work specifically in Cuyahoga County, looking at what, was, what led to Cuyahoga County's backlog. Of kids, and when I say backlog, I mean we that traditionally that that's been used this to mean a kit that hasn't been tested. So it's been collected, but it hasn't been tested forensically for DNA. Um, the reason for that is actually multifaceted and complex. Um, the first answer is always that like DNA wasn't always available. So while we think of CSI as being, you know, uh, you know. Uh, and DNA because of our inundation with um, crime shows that it's always been around, uh, but it hasn't. Um, it was really only what Mary in like the late eighties, the D or late late eighties, that DNA was first used, and then the nineties it was around, but it was so expensive that that very few kits were being tested. It had to be saved for those kits 
that were the most meat that would likely produce um, a, a match. And the DNA database wasn't really, the federal DNA database wasn't really being populated yet. So, um, because it was formed in the late 90s as well. So even if you tested it, you wouldn't, likely nothing would come of that because there wasn't any data underneath. So you would test it and you would put it in a database, but the database wasn't populated yet. So it took decades to populate that database to make the hits that you would need. And I think ultimately, so kits are, but the forensics is, is advancing and uh, forensic nursing and SANES and all these sorts of things are starting to collect all this evidence, but there wasn't really a mechanism by which to test that, the, all this evidence that's being collected. And because of that, they really didn't see the value in testing a kit if it wasn't the one where they were most likely to get a hit or they didn't know who the suspect was. And so it was like, if it's going to cost $10,000 to test a kit, then we're going to save those for the, the, the cases where it's a stranger and we think there's a high probability, a lot of DNA, and there's a high probability of getting a kit from this. So over time, the pattern just kind of became a cherry picking of which cases were, were worthy uh, or should be tested. And it was really up to the detectives on each case to determine whether there was any value in testing that kit and expending those resources, which proved to be not a very great idea because once you start giving individuals choices about which evidence is, is or is not worthy, you start pick, cherry picking certain types of victims, certain types of cases, certain other things where biases start to come into play. And we certainly see that as, as part of it. But I think the larger story, so we have, you know, DNA, we have uh, the sort of the typical answer, which is all true, but I think the larger story is that society just didn't prioritize sexual assault as a crime worthy of putting extra effort into. And so, especially in the high rates of crime in the 90s, the mid to late 90s, there were lots of rapes as well going on, but priorities went towards other types of crimes. And so, all this evidence is being collected, but police departments got no more people to investigate all these cases. They weren't trained very well. They, you know, they weren't necessarily using the best, most victim-centered ways of doing things. And so cases just got closed left and right. And what we write about in the book is that a kit, while it's very important that it is tested, it is really just a symptom of a much larger issue that, um, kits weren't tested, but also lots of things weren't done in these cases. And once you reread these cases, you can see like victims weren't interviewed, suspects weren't interviewed, um, other evidence wasn't submitted, calls weren't made, witnesses weren't, in, you know, like these cases had the, in some of the most minimal types of investigations you could possibly imagine where they're closed the same day um, or they're, you know, they, you know, they they wait a couple days they close it out they say hey i can't find the victim they victim doesn't call back the next day they close the case and with their and part of the story especially in cleveland is that they had so many cases on their docket that they or to investigate they couldn't have possibly done an extensive investigation of all those cases because you're you're asking them to carry a caseload that they can't possibly carry. 
And so that also means that then they had to cherry pick which cases. And so they're picking the cases that are most likely to move forward, which we've done research on are those cases where there was a named suspect, because it's easy to move a case along if you know there's a suspect. And but that also means that a victim has to know who her rapist is or his rapist is. Like, um, and then two, you uh, the the case um, the victim had to remain cooperative or they they that's the language used in the reports. But the victim had to want to participate or remain engaged through a very difficult process from the very beginning. And so if there was ever a time where they didn't call back, you know, victim didn't call back or, you know, they didn't come down for this or they didn't want to do, and sometimes they, obviously, victims don't necessarily want to participate in prosecutions and investigations, but, like, those two things mean that the cases weren't being investigated. So, of course, the kids weren't tested because really nothing was done with these cases, and I think that's what we also see nationwide is that police departments and prosecutors' offices had very few people tasked with actually investigating and prosecuting these cases. And so, of course, the kits weren't being tested, but it also means rapists went on to rape because nobody was sort of, you know, um, manning, the, manning the ship. And so as that continued to, to happen, then more victims came about because we weren't, you know, getting these individuals off the street. And there weren't being resources put towards sex crimes and really focusing on sex crimes. And I think that's one of the things the books really highlight is that if you're going to put resources towards any, especially a violent crime, you, you can do so, you know, like we write about in the chapter that we ha that I have with Mary, Mary and I wrote about, like resources should be spent for sex crimes because these offenders are likely committing all these other types of violent crimes. So you can prevent rape, which they frequently reoffend for that but then you can also you know um prevent other types of violent crime because you're prosecuting those offenders and you're really focusing your resources on getting those individuals who are the most violent and are continuing to reoffend and really wreaking havoc in the community instead of perhaps using those resources uh you know in to prosecuting or, or working other types of cases and if I could add to what uh, Dr. Lovell is saying, and Dr. Lovell and I have talked about this so many times over, <laughs> over the years, but it, it's not even necessarily that police officers and prosecutors don't want to do the right thing. They just don't have the resources they need. Mm -hmm. um, I, we've often talked about, you know, what are all these cases, these thousands of, thousands of investigations we were handling that are 20 years old. Sometimes we've looked at it like, well, back in 1996, Detective so-and-so had 50 cases on his on his on his desk he can't get to 50 cases so guess what two or three of them are gonna they're gonna fall through the cracks it's just you cannot get to every one of them and so over the years these two and three fell off these two and three fall those thousands that we're not looking at were all the ones that like fell off right they weren't the they weren't the best cases in the world because the best cases did get priority probably mm -hmm. at, when it, when they happened so we were investigating and prosecuting these thousands of cases that were cases that may have been forgotten because you just can't get to every case and prosecutors are sort of in the same boat i mean you cannot put all of your efforts and be the best prosecutor on 40 cases at a time it's just no one can handle that when it, you know and i think th these are the kind of things that have gotten better over the years um th the need for more detectives it's not it's not perfect right we, these are these these uh, police departments are still chronically understaffed uh, 
But but the point is, I don't think that these people, and I'm one of them, right? I'm a prosecutor. Certainly, I want to do my best on every single case. Um, but I need those. But we all need resources. We need um, we need to have a team that can help us with preparing cases for trial. Investigators need they need they need support as well to do to put their best foot forward in all of these cases. Yeah, I, to get to and Mary and I have talked about uh, Prosecutor Weston and I have talked about this quite extensively. That what what ends up happening are the most vulnerable victims. The most vulnerable individuals are most likely to be sexually assaulted, um, and then. If you look at the cases that didn't move forward, it is often the most vulnerable of the victims, right? So if you go back to the example of Anthony Soule, like, if you look at those cases, like, it is the story of exploiting vulnerabilities. And he specifically said he chose women who were most vulnerable that he thought society wouldn't care about, right? Like, and to a large extent, Sadly, he was probably right. These are individuals that had substance abuse issues and other sorts of things, and maybe just at a bad place in their life, which all of us have not necessarily, you know, have moments where we might not be at our best or, uh, you know, have vulnerable moments. And so I think it really, the initiative really helps emphasize that, like, we, that the most vulnerable are often the ones we need to focus the most on because they're the ones that are telling us of the, the terrible things that are out there, the, the terrible people who are exploiting them. Um, it's those individuals that need the most attention, but if we aren't able to staff correctly, and it isn't just they didn't care, police some might not have, or prosecutors just don't care. I don't think that that's, that's really what's going on. It's they can't, they're being tasked with something that they couldn't really possibly do. And the thing about the, the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative, which is a federal initiative through the Bureau of Justice Assistance, I mentioned earlier, it's about $200 million so far, um, has been allocated, I think that really speaks to it. Once you start putting resources towards having what Mary is talking about, lots of prosecutors, lots of investigators, um, you have people helping with those cases, you have everyone kind of collaborating and, and, and talking in a multidisciplinary way and learning from each other, then you're going to get those, you're, they, look at the results that her unit has been able to do um, and it is really a national model for this work about actually these are the hardest, some of the hardest cases and they've been most successful and because of the resources and the dedication and the training, look at what can come from prosecuting cases. And P.S. some of the, Mary can talk more about this specifically, but some of the most difficult cases are cold case sexual assaults um, to prosecute. Um, and uh, she's been leading a unit that has seen the most number of prosecutions in the United States from initiative like this. So I think it really speaks to uh, what can be done um, when there's the political will and the resources to do it. So per, per Prosecutor Weston, can you provide some examples of the sexual assault offenders mentioned in the book um, who were prosecuted by your unit. What is the profile of a sexual offender? As you can see, I'm like taking notes. As Dr. Lovell's talking, I'm like, this sexual offender. I remember this sexual <laughs> offender. Um, and when you were talking, Dr. Lovell, I thought of Lee Jones. Lee Jones is a serial sex offender. Um, he had already been in prison by the time he started hitting to additional cases that were tested as part of the backlog. 
And earlier, early on in the project, I handled a case of his where, speaking of vulnerable victims, he approached a woman on West 25th Street and offered to give her beer. I mean, it was the most simple thing. He offered to give her beer. He said, come with me. I just got to stop and get money, and then I'll buy us some beer and drink it. And he took her behind Lutheran Hospital and, like, violently, assault, brutally beat her and sexually assaulted her. These, like, and, and by the way, his other victims were, were similar in terms of I'm just going to offer you something and then violently beat you, beat you up and rape you. There are multiple examples like him. I can think of Stacy Bell. Stacy Bell is a man I prosecuted um, and he would, in one of his cases, he had approached a woman on the east side and offered her uh, crack in exchange for sex and she agreed. She wanted the crack She and he took her into a basement of an abandoned building and then suddenly it was clear he was not going to give her crack and he was going to force her to have sex. So um, she fought. She fought him. Um, and, in, in, you know, the thanks to her was she ended up with a broken knee. But he raped her in the basement. He crawls back out the window. Now she's got a broken knee. You know, she's down in this basement and she climbs out of the window. But she is, like we talk about vulnerabilities, she is an addict. And... Her priority before going to the hospital was to, to was to obtain crack. So she did. She obtained crack in exchange for sex prior to going to the hospital. When we talk about cases that investigators and prosecutors in the past, and I'm not kidding you, even today, you look at that case and you say, oh, my God, like, how is a jury going to understand, like, how is a jury going to understand this is what happens and care about and care about it enough to say, you know, that's not right? Um, and that is, I, that is a question I struggle with. Like, what is a jury going to think of this case? When you think about when prosecutors have to make decisions about whether to charge cases, uh, one thing that has changed over the years, and at least I think changed a lot in the task force, was the open-mindedness to say, and, to, and, and the training, by the way, a lot of training and like ex experience was needed for me personally and other prosecutors to make these changes was to say was to learn this is what's actually happening these are the kind of victims that are being targeted because they're not because predators believe they won't report and if they do report they won't be believed and if even if they're believed at some point they won't come to court they're not going to want to get on the stand and say i was prostituting and i was raped right no one wants to say that so predators are taking a bet when they pick victims like this um I, I, I say I talk about that case as an example of looking as a prosecutor looking at a case and saying these things happened. This guy has a pattern, right? He has a pattern of finding women that he thinks won't be believed. There is a good outcome to that story because the, uh, he was tried and convicted, so th these women were believed. But but um, taken on their own, maybe if they weren't linked to a serial sex offender, they you know they may not have been as strong. There are other there are other examples in the book. I mean, Doctor Lovell is is quite you know familiar with the cases of Nathan Ford. Nathan Ford is a serial sex offender linked to what, over twenty cases now. Twenty three through DNA. Twenty over twenty sexual assault kids. I mean, he's our most prolific sex, uh, sex offender, and he was quite violent as well. He would approach women on the street, strike up, strike up a conversation. Over and over again, women told me he just sounded like such a professional guy. He sounded educated, and he seemed safe. So, like, if he said, hey, I'll walk you down the street, I'm going the same way as you are, you know, his victims were like, okay. And then he had an MO of, like, violently punching somebody in the face and uh, strangling uh, uh 
them and and violently raping them. Um, his his um, his case was a cautionary tale of just how I guess how brutal and how how often he he struck. Yeah, he just and if you think about it, if he's li- if he's linked to over twenty sexual assault kits, how many other victims are there that never went and got sexual assault kits or had sexual assault kits and that didn't yield enough DNA because Nathan Ford became forensically aware halfway through his crime wave, he started using condoms, he started making his victims wash up. Um, one victim described he appeared he had been completely shaved. I mean, he was doing making efforts to avoid detection. So there's no question there are additional victims out there where he 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 did get a, he did get away with not leaving enough evidence to produce a DNA profile suitable to go into that offender database we're talking about that we rely so so much for our links and matches. Wow. And two of his rapes were here on Cleveland State campus. Um, of he you know he just exploited vulnerabilities and so it could be women he picked up it could be women he broke into their homes it could be women who were you know going to the bathroom and studying um on campus he he was a former probation officer and to get to mary's point about like so he knew the system or he he knew you know some aspect of the system being a probation officer and didn't have a past of sexual offenses so there was nothing to he wasn't in the DNA database at the time because he hadn't committed these types of crimes he was in law enforcement um, um, which also I think is one of the takeaways as well about sexual offenders and profiles is that our tendency is to think of sexual offenders of like they're such monsters that like I could never know someone who would do that right like those people who do that are sick they're ill, there's something wrong with them, and certainly there's something wrong with them. And they probably do have mental illness, but it's like, it's not this like monster in the corner type of thing where you see that person, you would immediately know that they were a sexual offender. And um, and so when it happens that it's, that it does happen to, you know, somebody you know of it couldn't be my cousin it couldn't be my brother it couldn't be my family member it couldn't be someone I worked with couldn't be Harvey Weinstein it's like oh he but he's so powerful he couldn't possibly have done Bill Cosby these types of stories actually what we find is like they don't really have a you know they have issues um but they're not the sorts of things that would create this like you know it's not like um they're not all severely mentally ill. They're not, you know, th- these are not the kind of characteristics. And so when faced with that, I think we have to also accept that like sexual assault is so common. Um, most, it's almost all men and most men aren't rapists. There is a small percentage that do it. They do it repeatedly. And, um, but they, they are the people we, that are in the Boy Scouts. They are the people that we go to school with. They are the people that, you know, that we meet on, you know, dating apps or whatever the situation is. And so I think also people opening up to sort of realize that uh, what we thought that that person to be like isn't isn't that person. You know, they could be um, your, your neighbor, your friend, someone you go to school with, those types of things. Of course, not, there's not rapists everywhere. Again, like not trying to leave people with the idea that like, you know, there's a rapist around every corner, but that, I mean, you know, that it's more um, of why we should focus on really prosecuting those cases and getting those offenders off the streets because they are um, serious, um, serious uh, dangers to the community.
as Nathan Ford was. And Prosecutor Weston, one way to help get the rapist off the street is to have survivors participate in the prosecutions. And so many survivors have varying reasons for not wanting to be involved with the prosecution after a sexual assault, particularly if it's been 20 years since the sexual assault occurred. How do you encourage these women? What new strategies have you been able to use to gain their participation? Well, Dr. Wright, you're, you're, you're correct to, to say it's been 20 years. How do you, and I have heard this over and over again. Our investigators will come to my office and say, having a hard time getting this uh, victim involved. You know, she says, it's been 20 years. Where were you then? And so uh, we have mostly taken the taken the tactic that um, to apologize, even though I wasn't around in the 90s and these investigators were not, we are not the kind of the people that dropped the ball. Um, just we take ownership of that. I think it's important to say, you're absolutely right. I'm sorry that happened to you. Uh, it shouldn't have. It definitely should not have happened to you. Uh, so that's for what's one thing I think it's important to do. But the second thing that really the most important thing I think is just listening and understand listening. I guess this is two things listening to victims. My role as a prosecutor, I'm not my job is not just to tell the victim when to come to court. My job is to listen to a victim when they're telling me maybe they're not, they're not even telling me with words they're telling me with actions that they're traumatized and that this is a hard process you know i think i've learned i've i've definitely learned a lot over the years sometimes i even look at my notes from 10 years ago and i'm like oh oh it's kind of embarrassing that it was that i was mm -hmm. that kind of black and white where i'd write like you know this victim blew me off how about that's a trauma response right if she's not coming to court to meet with you it might not be, and it has nothing to do with, you know, Mary Weston. There's other stuff going on in her life, and she may be traumatized. This may be causing her trauma, the idea of me coming in and meeting with me. I had a case, uh, one of the cases I handled as part of this task force, I remember um, the, we had started picking the jury, and the victim wasn't in court, you know. So I might, I'm, I'm, I'm 90% of my brain is... Um, Picking, talking to jury members, ten percent. I'm like, where is my victim? Is she, you know, I, I can't, I can't even really text my investigator because I'm talking to a jury. Is she going to show up? As a prosecutor, you're terrified that once that jury is sworn in, you have double jeopardy and you can't. If you have to dismiss your case, you cannot yes. bring it forward again. Um, and I was really stressed out. And I that victim taught me so much. By the way, she eventually came in um, the, the following day. We were able to extend our jury selection till the end of the day and she came in the next day. But she taught me so much because this I incorrectly assumed that this trial was so important, right? To hold this guy accountable. We must be heroes for this. She must think we're heroes. We're doing all these things. She was like, I have all this other stuff going on. I have problems with my kids. I have problems getting groceries. I have, problem, I had, I have child care issues. Coming to trial was the least of her concerns, especially since she had been raped 20 years ago. Like you said, 20 years ago. She's like, you know, I can imagine, I learned, what I learned from her is like, when she said to me, why should this be my top priority now? I was like, you're absolutely right. I have I have no good reason for you other than I want to hold the person that did this to you accountable. Um, and so listening and understanding that our victims, especially our vulnerable victims, and all victims, really, they have so many other things going on in their life. And understanding that and making sure that you can communicate in an authentic way, right, to victims that, I get it. Uh, I get that you have other things going on. I'm 
we are here, by the way, you have a team here, you have victim advocacy, you have prosecutors, you have investigators. We're going to do what we can to help you with those other things. We're going to now help you try to find resources, which I don't think people were probably doing in the 90s, is saying, okay, you're going to come and meet with your prosecutor, investigator, and victim advocate, but you're also going to find out how to find food and shelter and all these other things that you may need. Those things are important. To follow up, I think, in terms of the research and some of the stuff that the prosecutor Weston is talking about, we did do research um, on their, on the victim advocacy on their task force and the lessons learned from that. What, you know, what's working well, what isn't working as well, what could other jurisdictions do? And several of the things that we noted in that, the sort of speaks to that is the importance uh, of having a multidisciplinary team and better supporting survivors. So traditionally it's like a handoff in the criminal justice system where you, you know, a police and then a prosecutor and then, and then there's really nobody to support the victim in that. And the system, you know, there's trauma there. There's other things going on. There's a likely avoidance from the victim of not wanting to rehash or talk about such a terrible thing in front of a group of people or even have to think about what happened. Um, and so there's a recognition there, though, in a multidisciplinary team of, like, we each have our role. We know what that role is. Mary's role as a prosecutor is to help, you know, is to to get a conviction from that and help support the survivor in that. But her role isn't just to support the survivor as part of it, but it's really, you know, she has a role as a prosecutor. Police have a role in investigating that case. Victim advocates, I think, is the important contribution that they're at the table the whole time as well, is there to support the survivor. And one of the things we've highlighted that that her team does very well, and I've heard Prosecutor Weston mention this in her uh, as a supervisor, which is really, I think, transformative. She probably doesn't recognize it, but in the larger sense, it is transformative where she will say things in her, uh, uh, sort of talk about cultural change, where she'll say to her team, like, if a, perhaps if a victim doesn't necessarily want to come to court or, you know, it's like, I'm not for sure, she'll say, well, what have we done to... And what have we done to make the victim want to participate in the process? Mm-hmm. And while that's a very minor thing, it seems like it's a minor thing, it's really transformative of like, as as you said, it's like that case taught you of like, oh, this was not her first priority. This may be my priority. And, and but really what have we done to help make this process easier for her so we can maybe get her child care we can get her rides to the courtroom we can help have a survivor or victim advocate in the courtroom for her um during the trial or you know whatever kinds of things of like but what have we done to show the the victim that we will support them in this process and that is really i think transformative because once there's better support for that, you're gonna get more convictions. Um, you're gonna get more engagement in the process. And you know, then you're getting sexual offenders off the street, you're making community safer, all those sorts of things. And so um, victims play a key role in this and we've placed too much of a burden on them to, to, to do this. And so looking at, at uh, the work and the research that we've done on lessons learned from the unit, that is one of the main ones of like, you know, of how to really transform how the system responds to and supports victims in that. Even the most minor thing of, or what seemingly is minor of like, what have we done to, 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 to encourage participation instead of, of course they would want to participate, we're doing this for them. 
on the contrary, it's like, of course they would not want to participate. What have we done, right? So, of course you went to her house and, because uh, I hear this all the time, right? Of course you went to her house and she didn't answer the door. Okay, why would she? Okay, so uh, here comes her investigator to talk about her sexual assault again. I mean, let's assume that they don't want to talk about that and work from there, that they don't want to relive this trauma and work to mm-hmm. get them, or what can we do to make them comfortable on some level telling us what happened to them 20, 10, 20 years ago? Mm-hmm. I mean, now our cases aren't as, aren't that old anymore because we thankfully dealt with the statute really? of limitations going forward, but it is on us. And Dr. Lovell has, has heard me say that to people. Well, what have we done? What have we done? And what, can, what more will we do? Because mm-hmm. this case is not getting closed. We're going to keep we're going to keep working on yeah. it. I think it's really important to have that type of trauma informed response. Prosecutor Weston, what is the number one thing you hear from victims that they want from your office? Um, That they want? I think that they don't use the I think that it's more common that victims don't use their words to tell us exactly what they want, and we have to kind of hear them in other ways. Because I think what they want from us is to be believed. Um, But I often don't have a victim saying, um, please believe me. It's said in terms of, nobody believed me before. Um, Why should I talk to you now? Uh, I've heard that so many times. And so... But to me, that means they're telling me I want to be believed. I want you to care about this case. I want to be a priority. I want my family to know this happened to me. You know, you know, like I can't even imagine uh, reporting a sexual assault, have it forgotten, and and then to have my support system, which is like my family and friends, look at me like, well, if they didn't care, maybe this didn't happen. I don't, you know, like I kind of think it's a ripple effect. Like you need to you know believe your victims listen we all know that there are false rape reports and we all know that the rate of a false rape report is about the same rate as a false robbery or burglary burglary report so this research suggests but i can't imagine a burglary task force starting by being like i don't know i mean did they leave what did they do to get their house burglarized you know know, (laughs) they must have been asking for it or you know um so it's important to kind of look at our cases like that okay so what happened Mm-hmm. Listen to what happened, um, and and to to get back to your point, Doctor Wright, not even really expect your victims to tell you what they want, but to give them what they need, and to kind of look at other ways that they are telling telling you in not so many words, you know what they need in order in this case, because what they really want is to be believed, to have the person held accountable, and to and to feel justified. You know, terrible thing happened to them, and I think all victims know that's never going to go away. Uh, that's never it's never going to disappear but to be to be believed and have the per, have the person that did that to that to him have their comeuppance right mm-hmm. have them have to face that i think is what's important to victims we have one of uh, uh there's a chapter in the book written by a survivor um survivor of sexual assault and a survivor of the backlog from new york city and uh she uh natasha um and she Writes very ele- She's now turned uh, that terrible trauma into advocacy, and she works uh, and actually worked with then uh, President Bi- uh, Vice President Biden to start the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative. So she has been really transformative in in getting justice for s- hundreds of thousands of survivors and getting their kids tested. Um, but she talks about that, and it was very important to us to also have a chapter from a survivor in that and so she talks about you know the it was eventually tested they it didn't there wasn't a hit to something and then the guy committed another crime in another state went into the database and then 
she talks about when she gets notified about that and for her it the, the thing that wasn't omnipresent for her wasn't I have to make sure this guy gets a long conviction sentence that was sort of like sub secondary to she said I always just wanted a name like I needed a name I needed to to have a name he needed a name in my mind right so like what her priorities were were not the same as what a prosecutor and and, and that's wow. normal right that she was like I need a name I always wanted a name and she felt immense guilt for the the 10 or 15 years and her kit wasn't tested uh, because she thought it wasn't solved because she didn't remember what he looked like enough. She remembered the gun um, that was pointed at her, but she didn't remember his face and didn't provide. So she says that she carried all this guilt for so many years about how she had failed and surely he was out there raping other people. And if she had only remembered better, if she had only like been a better victim in a sense than the case that it was her fault that the case wasn't solved and so she assumed her kit was actually tested and so when she did get that name and they were like you know it's nothing it wasn't because you were like a quote bad victim right like it, it that had nothing to do with it then she felt this that guilt she talks about like just evaporating almost because and that's what she had been carrying that was her center of 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 doing that so i think knowing about you know that there's multiple people in this and they each have different priorities and that mary i think you astutely say sometimes the response from survivors and i've interviewed many survivors as part of this as well for research they will they will say you know it's like they don't tell you they show you through actions of and primarily avoidance actions and other sorts of things but um but that's but that is the response that you should be expecting right like you shouldn't necessarily think that someone would want to tell you a stranger the most intimate thing terrible thing the the, the worst day of their life right you right. know i'm a stranger to them the first time right and i'm a, expecting them to tell jury members right in front of a jury that they don't know who they are and a judge i mean it can't be easy. And that's the kind of transformative change that's kind of been captured in some of the book, holding systems accountable, as well as, you know, really saying we, we, we flipped, we've, we flipped this the wrong way and said we should be more victim centered. We should learn more about a trauma response and what was perhaps seemed to be deception prior is really a trauma response. Like sometimes victims won't have any affect no emotion yeah. sometimes they laugh sometimes they m make they remember weird components of the not weird but like you're like fragmented like, memory. fragmented memories like yeah she remembers like natasha you know i just remember every moment of the gun i remember every aspect of that gun but that's what was pointed at her face like her head so like of course that's what her brain would focus on less about the face and you know what he looked like because his face wasn't the immediate thing that was uh, you know threatening her life so um learning more about those sorts of things is which is which is happening across the nation around training and things like that so i think lots of people are getting more of that training so that's very insightful to have and to include that chapter from a survivor um to share what their experience is with mm -hmm. the system because some of the things that she shared was even surprising to mm -hmm. me because again you don't expect some of the things to hear some of the things that they express so 
Dr. Lavelle, what are future policy initiatives? What types of policies do you think would be most monumental for pushing your efforts forward? So we do have a chapter as well written by the Joyful Heart Foundation, um, which is the major organ national organization who's leading the charge in terms of rape kit reform. It was started by Mershka Hargitay from uh, Law and Order SVU. And they actually have, in terms of massive change and what people can do, um, it the they have a, what they call a six-pillar um, policy reform. So that, that's certainly a big part of it is like mandating legislation. I'm saying you have to test the kids. You have to make sure you there's a way for there's a tracking system for the kids so they can't be shelved and no one remembers there has to be you know money allocate <clears throat> excuse me to continuing that so certainly there's a component of policy and statewide change um, but I think on the the other research the 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 focus of this and m the work that I've been working on around policy is a emphasizing the importance of this um, but uh, there's you know, mandating training um, is another important component of this that's not part of the legislation. Um, mandating training for both police and prosecutors. Um, it is to um, to have a, a sort of mechanism for accountability. Um, if you were trying to see how many cases lead to a prosecution from a reported rape, there's really no way to we've done it and it's extremely labor intensive to try to figure out here's a report what happened with that case down the road um, even in Cleveland and so we've been working and, and so there's also a chapter from uh, Washington State is actually mandated legislation that requires case reviews and some sort of mandated uh, component to see how far along cases are moving so that there is some monitoring of the policies and practices in the state where it's like, you know, you can't just kill, a, you know, you can't just like not move forward with things. Like somebody is going to be monitoring this and you have to participate in this through legislation. So I think some of the work that they're doing, um, I think there's some, uh, I would really love to, to do more work on this. There's some beginning work around um, sex offender management courts, which seem to be really effective, but haven't been replicated in many places, but I've been working to try to see if we could get something like that in Cleveland, where it's less about the registration and more just about managing the, the offender um, and uh, less about, you know, like I said, the sort of public you know, I, I don't do research in the offender management, uh, the registration, but in terms of management, um, where the victims can come on a certain day, judges are trained in this, prosecutors, probation officers, you have that multidisciplinary team, and they're working to sort of make sure that these offenders are, are you know, um, getting the help that they need if, if, if they want it. Um, but also that the people in their lives you know, might have protective orders against them, that they're making sure that all those sorts of things are in place so that um, they, they, they are monitored. Um, uh, so I think there's some encouraging work around that being done. And Prosecutor Weston, what words of wisdom do you have for jurisdictions that have not prioritized backlog mm -hmm. kits? Well, the biggest takeaway that I would share with other jurisdictions is 
how many serial offenders that they're going to identify. It's not uh, a happy thought, but uh, there are, when we tested our kits, I want to say in doctor level, you may know, it was like between a third, between a fourth and a third were uh, what we would call, we, they would link to other kits. So, um, so many serial, I mean, you can see me making notes through this thing. I'm thinking this serial offender, I'm thinking this serial offender. And um, that those are huge crime waves that, that you, ha if you haven't tested your kits, those people are probably still out on the streets unless they got caught along the way and maybe they're in for a little bit of time. Well, you better find out before they get out. There are, it's almost like a goldmine of information that you are not uncovering if you don't test the kits because those, I'm telling you, I get so, ex CODIS match letters are like my bread and butter. I love CODIS match letters more than life but <laughs> you get these codas match letters it's like it is so fascinating that these the same person's dna is on all these different wow. crime scenes it is eye-opening and then if you look and like we've talked about um another thing we've learned is not not every crime is the same mo like you know people uh really predators what we've learned are more opportunistic than um stuck in some sort of um what's the word like a pattern but those um those serial serial offenders would make it worth the cost of admission to test your rape kits and get get these people off the streets because they're not even just committing rapes they're committing other crimes they're causing major havoc and harm in your community. Doctor level knows more knows about the economic impact too of testing your rape kits. So it's like if you're not even interested in testing your rape kits for the right reasons for victims, test it because it will save money for your community like millions of dollars because these people that if you prosecute them now you're stopping this a pattern of crime the research shows in the future that's my biggest takeaway to tell people to test their rape kits mm -hmm. that's a huge and follow takeaway. up on them right you gotta test oh, them but that's and you true gotta, you, you gotta, gotta, gotta do follow up something. on them just testing them is not gonna be enough yeah. right you gotta prosecute well dr lovell and prosecutor weston thank you so much for joining us on this podcast today this has been a fascinating discussion can you please share um, information about resources for our audience um, if they've been sexually assaulted, if they've know someone who's been sexually assaulted, if they're a survivor who needs counseling, where would you recommend they go or talk? Um, so I uh, there is a national hotline uh, for people who might be listening to this and one of the things I actually teach in my victimology course is the you know, forget all the victimology stuff that's important and I'm not saying Cleveland State that that's not important to teach but if I if my students could walk away with one thing it would be please get information and training on a trauma-informed response to sexual assault because you or to trauma in general because you will be associated with someone you will know someone who has been traumatized um, sexually assault human trafficking something you will know those individuals and so it's very important to have a trauma-informed response back to that. I believe you. I know you, you don't, you know, those kinds of things. There's lots of information online about a trauma-informed response to disclosure. Usually that makes a massive difference in how those individuals are able to process. As, as Prosecutor Weston mentioned, if no one believes you, how much, how much harder it is to overcome the victimization when you don't feel believed in that. So everyone should be trained in how, and it's a very easy sort of stuff of the things to say, the things not to say, and how to, to, to provide resources. But there isn't, uh, for people who might be listening, and this is, this is um, you want someone to talk to about this, there is the National Sexual Assault Hotline, which is 24-7. Uh, um, it's one 800 656 
1-800-656-4673. So 1-800-656-4673. And then um, if you're local and wanted to follow up with... Um, I mean, there's a lot of resources even on Cleveland Rape Crisis um, website, which is clevelandrapecrisis.org. Um, that would be, I would believe that would be the resource for, for local for Clevelanders. Outstanding. Thanks again, Dr. Lavelle and Prosecutor Weston. That is all for today's podcast. We hope you will tune in next time. <laughs> Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. Thank you. Hello, welcome to the Levin College of Public Affairs and Education podcast. My name is Dr. Valerie Wright and I am the Chair and Associate Professor in the Department of Criminology and Sociology. I would like to introduce my guest today. First, we have Dr. Rachel Lavelle, who earned her PhD in Sociology from The Ohio State University and is an Assistant Professor of Criminology and the Director of the Criminology Research Center at Cleveland State University. She is an applied criminologist and methodologist whose research focuses on gender-based violence and victimization, particularly sexual assault, human traffic, and intimate partner violence. She is the co-editor of a new book titled Sexual Assault Kids and Reforming the Response to Rape. Thank you for being here, Rachel. Thanks, Valerie, or Dr. Wright. <laughs> an attorney. Um, Mary Weston earned her law degree from Case Western Reserve University School of Law and is currently an assistant Cuyahoga County prosecutor and supervises the cold case unit that prosecutes rapes and homicides. She has been an assistant prosecuting attorney since 2006 and joined the Cuyahoga County Sexual Assault Kit Task Force when it was formed in 2013. Currently, she is the project manager for the task force, overseeing all aspects of cold case sexual assaults and homicides investigation, making charging decisions, presenting cases to the grand jury, and litigating cases in court and on appeal. Thank you again for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Wright. So let's just jump right in. Dr. Lavelle, first, congratulations to you on the book. Thank you. Could you provide us with an overview of your book and what you think we should know and take away from it? Uh, yes, absolutely. So this is the first book that I've written and first uh, uh, edited volume as well. So um, my co-author and I, uh, she goes by Dr. LR because her name has like 40 letters in it. Um, we wanted to really write the book. We were both researchers working uh, with the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative, which we'll be talking about uh, more today. But we were researchers working in this space and really doing research on and being connected with individuals who were really making transformative change in how sexual assault was, was being treated uh, within the criminal justice system, how victims were being better supported in this. Um, and how this transformation came about through really what is a massive injustice for hundreds of thousands of victims of sexual assault in the United States. So we really wanted to, we and there's about $200 million being spent federally on this initiative. So we really wanted to be able to kind of capture, you know, uh, where we've been um, with sexual assault kits uh, or where we've been. and what that means and how sexual assault kits are just a symptom of a much larger issue and how the system responds to sexual assault and then capture kind of what the what's being done now and how much better things are going 
um, in terms of better supporting victims and solving cases and all the ways that these kids are, are really making an impact now and then looking forward to the future about what do we want to see in terms of a better response so we really envision this book as like a mem almost like a memorialization of this moment in time but a really a call to action moving forward that the public that academics that prosecutors nurses police officers um policy makers all of these folks forensic scientists, they all have a role in this and we're all sort of in this together. And that, you know, we say at the end, we really hope that we write a different book in 10 years, that there's a different story, a much more transformed approach. And so, um, and so I think we, we through several chapters and through amazing, um, Im impactful chapters, we talk about kind of where we've been, what we're doing now and uh, where we would like to be in the future. Um, as it relates to sexual assaults and sexual assault kits specifically. So the book <clears throat> addresses how fundamental changes are needed to change our society's response to rape. Can you both talk about this from your own unique ex perspectives? Mary, uh, uh, Mr. West, uh, <laughs> Prosecutor Weston, do you want to go first? Yeah. Um, I think that put it in context, I think it's helpful to talk about kind of how we, like my, the prosecutor's office, became involved in a project like this. And that context here in Cleveland is the story of Anthony Sowell. And most Clevelanders will recall in 2011 when you know, multiple bodies were found in Anthony Sowell's yard and in his house, bodies of women he had lured into, the house, lured into his house with the promise of drugs, and he killed those women. But what happened as a result of that case making the news is there were women that came forward that said, hey, you know, he did the same thing to me. I survived. I got out of that house and I did everything the, one would be expected to do as the victim of a, of, a, of a rape and perhaps an attempted murder, right, is I went to the police, I told them what happened to me, and I expected them to do their jobs. And And, and yet he was still out on the streets to commit these murders. So... Um, there was an investigation done into uh, a review, I would say, more a review of how Cleveland Police Sex Crimes was handling its sex crimes investigations over the years. And it was during that re review that a number, and by a number I mean thousands of rape kits, were discovered in the property room and other areas in the Cleveland Police Department, seemingly never tested, never, never sent to the lab. So... Um, you know, that's when that that's how the task force came into existence. At least, you know, uh, at that point, there was clearly a need to do a number of things at once. Right? We got to test these kits. We got to contact these victims. We have to notify these victims that, that something's happening. And then once those, <laughs> let's let's walk this through. Right now, we're sending thousands of kits to the lab. Well, we're going to get thousands of responses and and DNA reports, and that means thousands of investigations and prosecutions and so and and so a t an entire team was sort of needed you know you, you need investigators you need victim advocates you need uh, law enforcement you need prosecutors you need lab you need you need lab analysts you need sexual assault kit, uh, nurses to kind of give you advice and so the task force was formed at that point and 
that was how we were, you know, by looking at all these rape kits over the years, like looking at the results of all these rape kits, I think that that is what made it possible to kind of look at what was happening in the past, what is happening now, and what, as you said, fundamental changes are needed to make sure something like this doesn't happen again. By the way, Cleveland was not the only jurisdiction that had this issue. Uh, we were. Uh, it's not a good way to, it's not a happy reason to form partnerships, but it certainly was helpful to form partnerships in other cities, sister cities, we almost called them, to learn, well, you know, Detroit and Memphis and New York City, like, how are you handling your backlogs and what's the best way forward? Because there's really no way to learn this, right? Um, other than, you know, just learning it on your own. What's the best way to notify a victim that, your case is going to be looked at now 20 years later. I mean, how do you learn about how to have that conversation? It was all, it was all very new to us. And when you talked about, talk, Dr. Rate, when you talk about fundamental change, um, Dr. Rachel, Dr. Lovell's research is so impactful because it does look at what is the results of thousands of these rape kits and what can we learn from that? What can we learn about every aspect of it? Victim notification investigation. And when you look through this book, there's all these topics are covered. How to notify a victim, how to conduct an investigation, how to um, best interview a suspect where, you know, he committed this crime 20 years ago. Um, this, cr this book is chock full of ideas for jurisdictions that may go through the same issues we have. Thank you. I just want to, to follow up a little bit on that. I, I think I do this quite a bit that I forget to explain what a sexual assault kit is because uh, it's such a big part of what, you know, like what we know about, but for people who are listening or watching that may not know what a kit is, um, after someone has been sexually assaulted, they go primarily to a hospital or other sort of medical facility where a medical professional takes evidence from the body and from the clothes of the person who is, uh, who is in that hospital, um, to collect DNA, primarily DNA evidence, but other types of evidence as well from, um, the victim. So not only are these kits evidence, important evidence, um, but they're also, you know, like the victim's body is a crime scene. So it's also a very intimate um, collection. And in many ways, it's like what society has kind of placed the burden on victims to do. Like if you're raped, you go to the hospital, you get healthcare you know, some sort of medical help as well for any injuries or STDs, or pregnancies, those types of things. But also you go through what can be a long procedure, an intimate procedure to collect this evidence. And then for decades, what we asked victims to do that as a society and then didn't do anything with the evidence that was collected from them um, uh, and just kind of tagged it and put it, you know, on a shelf. Um, and uh, in the book talks about all the different reasons why, you know, we have the issues of untested kits. Um, but th that's basically what it is. The victims have been have been collected this evidence. They had very strong evidence and uh, for many reasons didn't test it um, until recently. And the funding has been around now with the sexual assault kit initiative to test those things. But uh, the task force that Mary leads, um, or we're just going to have to, because we, <laughs> I, I, we, uh, it's just too formal. It sounds so formal to use the, the honorifics, um, is working with, uh, 
you know they fo- they started before even the f- the there was federal money to do this, and so um, one of the oldest kind of task force. Um, but when they were doing that, when they formed, they didn't know what was the best way to do this. It had never been done. It was an initiative on a massive scale, um, and they didn't know what was to come from it. They didn't know the best practices, and that's how we got involved. Um, when I was at Case Western Reserve University, um, we were approached by her former boss, um, Prosecutor Tim McGinty, when he started the task force to um, as the research partner. And he really was, uh, he in several meetings, he said, I think what we're doing here is transformative. There's nothing to go from here. Uh, you know, in terms of how to best move forward with how we should set this up, how how should we investigate cases, how should we prioritize cases. We're seeing some of these rapists having massive criminal histories. These rapes are not quite what we thought they were going to be. There's just so much here, and we need a researcher, an independent, you know, evaluator to come in and do this research and kind of help us see what are some of these bigger pictures. Where should we be putting our resources? What's the best way to contact a victim who gets a knock on her door, his or her door, mostly her in the rape kits, um, 20 years later, and says, oh, by the way, we now you know, we didn't do anything with your case then, we did something now, and now we have a name for you. Um, and so that uh, needed a lot of research around that. And so luckily the federal initiative came along, there was money then put forth, um, uh, and I, I think very smartly from the federal initiative to put research connected to that so we could start to memorialize and start to have these lessons learned. They could be shared across the different jurisdictions. Um, and so that's some of the chapters of, of what we memorialize, how transformation has happened in police departments, in prosecutors' offices, um, with forensic nurses, um, with forensic scientists, and as well as how the technology has even advanced in the last 10 years with forensic genetic genealogy helping um, work cases that couldn't have been. And, um, how much DNA and the testing is much faster and cheaper and all these things that have since changed since the kits were first um, collected. So Dr. Lavelle, 20 years is a really long time. Can you speak more about why so many kits were untested in Cuyahoga County and the nation and also why you uh, felt the need to write a book about it? Uh, so the first chapter in the book is written by um, Rebecca Campbell um, and uh, uh, and Hannah Faney, uh, Hannah Faney, who um, and Han- uh, Hannah was a graduate student of Becky Campbell's at Michigan State, and, and Becky was one of the first folks doing this even before we were we were doing research in this area, and she worked with um, Detroit and working with their sexual assault kits, as well as a researcher from Sam Houston State, Bill Wells, um, worked with the uh, Houston Police Department. Those were some of the early ones, along with uh, Memphis and New York City. And um, so they wrote the first book because they they really did much of the transformative work around this. We've also done work specifically in Cuyahoga County, looking at what what led to Cuyahoga County's backlog. Of kids, and when I say backlog, I mean we pr- that traditionally that that's been used. This that 
to mean a kit that hasn't been tested. So it's been collected, but it hasn't been tested forensically for DNA. Um, the reason for that is actually multifaceted and complex. Um, the first answer is always that like DNA wasn't always available. So while we think of CSI as being, you know, uh, you know, uh, and DNA because of our inundation with um, crime shows, that it's always been around, uh, but it hasn't. Um, it was really only what Mary in like the late eighties, the D or late late 80s that DNA was first used and then the 90s it was around but it was so expensive that that very few kits were being tested it had to be saved for those kits that were the most meat that would likely produce um, a, a match and the DNA database wasn't really, the federal DNA database wasn't really being populated yet. So, um, because it was formed in the late nineties as well. So even if you tested it, you wouldn't, likely nothing would come of that because there wasn't any data underneath. So you would test it and you would put it in a database, but the database wasn't populated yet. So it took decades to populate that database to make the hits that you would need. And I think ultimately, so kits are, but forensics is, is advancing and uh, forensic nursing and SANES and all these sorts of things are starting to collect all this evidence, but there wasn't really a mechanism by which to test that, the, all this evidence that's being collected. And because of that, they really didn't see the value in testing a kit if it wasn't the one where they were most likely to get a hit or they didn't know who the suspect was. And so it was like, if it's gonna cost $10,000 to test a kit, then we're gonna save those for the, the, the cases where it's a stranger and we think there's a high probability, a lot of DNA and there's a high probability of getting a kit from this. So over time, the pattern just kind of became a cherry picking of which cases were, were worthy uh, or should be tested. And it was really up to the detectives on each case to determine whether there was any value in testing that kit and expending those resources, which proved to be not a very great idea because once you start giving individuals choices about which evidence is, is or is not worthy, you start pick, cherry picking certain types of victims, certain types of cases, certain other things where biases start to come into play. And we certainly see that as, as part of it. But I think the larger story, so we have, you know, DNA, we have uh, the sort of the typical answer, which is all true, but I think the larger story is that society just didn't prioritize sexual assault as a crime worthy of putting extra effort into. And so, especially in the high rates of crime in the 90s, the mid to late 90s, there were lots of rapes as well going on, but priorities went towards other types of crimes. And so, all this evidence is being collected, but police departments got no more people to investigate all these cases. They weren't trained very well. They, you know, they weren't necessarily using the best, most victim-centered ways of doing things. And so cases just got closed left and right. And what we write about in the book is that a kit, while it's very important that it is tested, it is really just a symptom of a much larger issue that, um, kits weren't tested, but also lots of things weren't done in these cases. And once you reread these cases, you can see like victims weren't interviewed, suspects weren't interviewed. Um, 
other evidence wasn't submitted, calls weren't made, witnesses weren't in it. You know, like these cases had the in some of the most minimal types of investigations you could possibly imagine, where they're closed the same day, um, or they're you know they you know they they wait a couple days, they close it out. They say, hey, I can't find the victim. They victim doesn't call back the next day. They close the case. And with their and part of the story, especially in Cleveland, is that they had so many cases on their docket that they or to investigate. They couldn't have possibly done an extensive investigation of all those cases because you're you're asking them to carry a caseload that they can't possibly carry. And so that also means that then they had to cherry pick which cases. And so they're picking the cases that are most likely to move forward, which we've done research on are those cases where there was a named suspect, because it's easy to move a case along if you know there's a suspect. But that also means that a victim has to know who her rapist is or his rapist is like, um, and then Two, you uh, the the case um, the victim had to remain cooperative, or they they that's the language used in the reports. But the victim had to want to participate or remain engaged through a very difficult process from the very beginning. And so, if there was ever a time where they didn't call back, you know, victim didn't call back, or you know, they didn't come down for this, or they didn't want to do, and sometimes they obviously victims don't necessarily want to participate in prosecutions and investigations, but like those two things mean that the cases weren't being investigated. So of course the kids weren't tested because really nothing was done with these cases. And I think that's what we also see nationwide is that police departments and prosecutors offices had very few people tasked with actually investigating and prosecuting these cases. And so of course the kids weren't being tested, but it also means rapists went on to rape because nobody was sort of you know, um, manning the manning the ship, and so as that continued to to happen, then more victims came about because we weren't you know getting these individuals off the street, and there weren't being resources put towards sex crimes and really focusing on sex crimes, and I think that's one of the thing the books really highlight is that if you're going to put resources towards any, especially a violent crime, you, you can do so you know, like we write about in the chapter that we ha- that I have with Mary, Mary and I wrote about like resources should be spent for sex crimes because these offenders are likely committing all these other types of violent crimes. So you can prevent rape, which they frequently reoffend for that. But then you can also, you know, um, prevent other types of violent crime because you're prosecuting those offenders and you're really focusing your resources on getting those individuals who are the most violent and are continuing to reoffend and really wreaking havoc in the community instead of perhaps using those resources, uh, you know, in to prosecuting or, or working other types of cases. And if I could add to what uh, Dr. Lovell is saying, and Dr. Lovell and I have talked about this so many times over over the years, but it's not even necessarily that police officers and prosecutors don't want to do the right thing. They just don't have the resources they need. Mm -hmm. Um, We've often talked about, you know, what are all these cases, these thousands of investigations we were handling that are 20 years old. Sometimes we've looked at it like, well, back in 1996, Detective so-and-so had 50 cases on 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 his desk. He can't get to 50 cases, so guess what? Two or three of them are going to 
they're going to fall through the cracks. It's just you cannot get to every one of them. And so over the years, these two and three fell off, these two and three fall. Those thousands that we're not looking at were all the ones that like fell off, right? They weren't the they weren't the best cases in the world because the best cases did get priority probably at mm-hmm. some, it, when it, when they happened. So we were investigating and prosecuting these thousands of cases that were cases that may have been forgotten because you just can't get to every case. And prosecutors are sort of in the same boat. I mean, you cannot put all of your efforts and be the best prosecutor on 40 cases at a time. It's just no one can handle that. When it, you know, And I think th- these are the kind of things that have gotten better over the years. Um, th- the need for more detectives. It's not, it's not perfect, right? We, th- these are, these, these uh, police departments are still chronically understaffed. Uh, but, but the point is, I don't think that these people, and I'm one of them, right? I'm a prosecutor. Certainly, I want to do my best on every single case. Um, but I need those, but we all need resources. We need, um, we need to have a team that can help us with preparing cases for trial. Investigators need, they need, they need support as well to do, to put their best foot forward in all of these cases. Yeah, I, to get to, and Mary and I have talked about, uh, Prosecutor Weston and I have talked about this quite extensively, that what what ends up happening are the most vulnerable victims. The most vulnerable individuals are most likely to be sexually assaulted. Um, and then if you look at the cases that didn't move forward, it is often the most vulnerable of the victims, right? So if you go back to the example of Anthony Soul, like, if you look at those cases, like, it is the story of exploiting vulnerabilities. And he specifically said he chose women who were most vulnerable that he thought society wouldn't care about, right? Like, and to a large extent, sadly, he was probably right. These are individuals that had substance abuse issues and other sorts of things, and maybe just at a bad place in their life, which all of us have not necessarily, you know, have moments where we might not be at our best or, uh, you know, have vulnerable moments. And so I think it really, the initiative really helps emphasize that, like, we, that the most vulnerable are often the ones we need to focus the most on because they're the ones that are telling us of the, the terrible things that are out there, the, the terrible people who are exploiting them. Um, it's those individuals that need the most attention, but if we aren't able to staff correctly, and it isn't just they didn't care, police off, some might not have, or prosecutors just don't care. I don't think that that's, that's really what's going on. It's they can't, they're being tasked with something that they couldn't really possibly do. And the thing about the, the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative, which is a federal initiative through the Bureau of Justice Assistance, I mentioned earlier, it's about $200 million so far, Um, has been allocated, I think that really speaks to it. Once you start putting resources towards having what Mary is talking about, lots of prosecutors, lots of investigators, um, you have people helping with those cases, you have everyone kind of collaborating and, and, and talking in a multidisciplinary way and learning from each other, then you're going to get those look at the results that her unit has been able to do um, and it is really a national model for this work about actually these are the hardest some of the hardest cases and they've been most successful and because of the resources and the dedication and the training look at what can come from prosecuting cases and PS some of them Mary can talk more about this 
specifically with some of the most difficult cases are cold case sexual assaults um, to prosecute. Um, and uh, she's been leading a unit that has seen the most number of prosecutions in the United States from initiative like this. So I think it really speaks to uh, what can be done um, when there's the political will and the resources to do it. So per, per Prosecutor Weston, can you provide some examples of the sexual assault offenders mentioned in the book um, who were prosecuted by your unit? What is the profile of a sexual offender? As you can see, I'm like taking notes. As Dr. Lovell is talking, I'm like, this sexual offender. I remember this sexual <laughs> offender. Um, and when you were talking, Dr. Lovell, I thought of Lee Jones. Lee Jones is a serial sex offender. Um, he had already been in prison by the time he started hitting to additional cases that were tested as part of the backlog. And earlier, early on in the project, I handled a case of his where, speaking of vulnerable victims, he approached a woman on West 25th Street and offered to give her beer. I mean, it was the most simple thing. He offered to give her beer. He said, come with me. I just got to stop and get money, and then I'll buy us some beer and drink it. And he took her behind Lutheran Hospital and, like, violently, assault, brutally beat her and sexually assaulted her. These, like, and, and by the way, his other victims were, were similar in terms of I'm just going to offer you something and then violently beat you, beat you up and rape you. There are multiple examples like him. I can think of Stacy Bell. Stacy Bell is a man I prosecuted um, and he would, in one of his cases, he had approached a woman on the east side and offered her uh, crack in exchange for sex. And she agreed. She wanted the crack. She And he took her into a basement of an abandoned building. And then suddenly it was clear he was not going to give her crack and he was going to force her to have sex. So um, she fought. She fought him. Um, and, in, in, you know, the thanks to her was she ended up with a broken knee. But he raped her in the basement. He crawls back out the window. Now she's got a broken knee. You know, she's down in this basement. And she climbs out of the window. But she is, like we talk about vulnerabilities, she is an addict. And her priority before going to the hospital was to, to, was to obtain crack. So she did. She obtained crack in exchange for sex prior to going to the hospital. When we talk about cases that investigators and prosecutors in the past, and I'm not kidding you, even today, you look at that case and you say, oh my God, like, how is a jury going to understand, like, this, how is a jury going to understand this is what happens and care about and care about it enough to say, you know, that's not right? Um, and that is, I, that is a question I struggle with. Like, what is a jury going to think of this case? When you think about when prosecutors have to make decisions about whether to charge cases, uh, one thing that has changed over the years, and at least I think changed a lot in the task force, was the open-mindedness to say, and, to, and, and the training, by the way, a lot of training and like ex experience was needed for me personally and other prosecutors to make these changes was to say, was to learn, this is what's actually happening. These are the kind of victims that are being targeted because they're not, because predators believe they won't report. And if they do report, they won't be believed. And if even if they're believed at some point, they won't come to court. They're not going to want to get on the stand and say, I was prostituting and I was raped, right? No one wants to say that. So predators are taking a bet when they pick victims like this. Um, I, I, I say I talk about that case as an example of looking as a prosecutor looking at a case and saying, these things happened. This guy has a pattern, right? He has a pattern of finding women that he thinks won't be believed. There is a good outcome to that story because the uh, 
he was tried and convicted. So th- these women were believed, but but um, taken on their own, maybe if they weren't linked to a serial sex offender, they you know they may not have been as strong. There are other there are other examples in the book. I mean, Doctor Lovell is is quite you know familiar with the cases of uh, Nathan Ford. Nathan Ford is a serial sex offender linked to what, over 20 cases now. 23 through DNA. So 20, over 20 sexual assault kids. I mean, he's our most prolific sec, uh, sex offender, and he was quite violent as well. He would approach women on the street, strike up, strike up a conversation. Over and over again, women told me he just sounded like such a professional guy. He sounded educated. And he seemed safe. So, like, if he said, hey, I'll walk you down the street. I'm going the same way as you are, you know, his victims were like, okay. And then he had an MO of, like, violently punching somebody in the face and uh, strangling uh, uh, them and and violently raping them. Um, his, his, um, his case was a cautionary tale of just how, I guess, how brutal and how how often he he struck yeah he just and if you think about it, if he's li- if he's linked to over 20 sexual assault kits how many other victims are there that never went and got sexual assault kits or had sexual assault kits and that didn't yield enough dna because nathan ford became forensically aware halfway through his crime wave he started using condoms he started making his victims wash up um one victim described that he appeared he had been completely shaved I and mean, he was doing making efforts to avoid detection so there's no question there are additional victims out there where he 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 did get he did get away with not leaving enough evidence to produce a dna profile suitable to go into that offender database we're talking about that we rely so so much for our links and matches wow and two of his rapes were here on cleveland state campus um of he you know he just exploited vulnerabilities and so it could be women he picked up it could be women he broke into their homes it could be women who were you know going to the bathroom and studying um on campus he he was a former probation officer and to get to mary's point about like so he knew the system or he he knew you know some aspect of the system being a probation officer and didn't have a past of sexual offenses so there was nothing to he wasn't in the DNA database at the time because he hadn't committed these types of crimes he was in law enforcement um, um, which also I think is one of the takeaways as well about sexual offenders and profiles is that our tendency is to think of sexual offenders of like they're such monsters that like I could never know someone who would do that right like those people who do that are sick they're ill, there's something wrong with them, and certainly there's something wrong with them. And they probably do have mental illness, but it's like, it's not this like monster in the corner type of thing where you see that person, you would immediately know that they were a sexual offender. And um, and so when it happens that it's, that it does happen to, you know, somebody you know of it couldn't be my cousin it couldn't be my brother it couldn't be my family member it couldn't be someone I worked with couldn't be Harvey Weinstein it's like oh he but he's so powerful he couldn't possibly have done Bill Cosby these types of stories actually what we find is like they don't really have a you know they have issues um but they're not the sorts of things that would create this like you know it's not like um they're not all severely mentally ill. They're not, you know, th- these are not the kind of characteristics. And so when faced with that, I think we have to also accept that, like, 
sexual assault is so common, um, most it's almost all men and most men aren't rapists. There is a small percentage that do it. They do it repeatedly. And, um, but they, they are the people we, that are in the Boy Scouts. They are the people that we go to school with. They are the people that, you know, that we meet on, you know, dating apps or whatever the situation is. And so I think also people opening up to sort of realize that, uh, what we thought that that person to be like, isn't, isn't that person, you know, they could be, um, your, your neighbor, your friend, someone you go to school with, those types of things. Of course, not, there's not rapists everywhere. Again, like not trying to leave people with the idea that like, you know, there's a rapist around every corner, but that, I mean, you know, that it's more um, of why we should focus on really prosecuting those cases and getting those offenders off the streets because they are um, serious, um, serious uh, dangers to the community as Nathan Ford was. And Prosecutor Weston, one way to help get the rapists off the street is to have survivors participate in the prosecutions. And so many survivors have varying reasons for not wanting to be involved with the prosecution after a sexual assault, particularly if it's been 20 years since the sexual assault occurred. How do you encourage these women? What new strategies have you been able to use to gain their participation? Well, Dr. Wright, you're, you're, you're correct to, to say it's been 20 years. How do you, and I have heard this over and over again. Our investigators will come to my office and say, having a hard time getting this uh, victim involved. You know, she says, it's been 20 years. Where were you then? And so uh, we have mostly taken the, taken the tactic that um, to apologize. Even though I wasn't around in the 90s and these investigators were not, we are not kind of the people that dropped the ball. Um, just we take ownership of that. I think it's important to say, you're absolutely right. I'm sorry that happened to you. Uh, it shouldn't have. It definitely should not have happened to you. Uh, so that's for what's one thing I think it's important to do. But the second thing, the, really the most important thing, I think, is just listening and understanding. Listening, I guess this is two things, listening to victims. My role as a prosecutor, I'm not, my job is not just to tell the victim when to come to court. My job is to listen to a victim when they're telling me, maybe they're not, they're not even telling me with words, they're telling me with actions, that they're traumatized and that this is a hard process. You know, I think I've learned, I, I, I've definitely learned a lot over the years. Sometimes I even look at my notes from 10 years ago and I'm like, oh, oh, it's kind of embarrassing that it was that, I was that mm -hmm. kind of black and white where I'd write like, you know, this victim blew me off. How about that's a trauma response, right? If she's not coming to court to meet with you, it might not be, and it has nothing to do with, you know, Mary Weston. There's other stuff going on in her life, and she may be traumatized. This may be causing her trauma, the idea of me coming in and meeting with me. I had a case, uh, one of the cases I handled as part of this task force, I remember um, the, we had started picking the jury and the victim wasn't in court, you know? So I might, I, I, I 90% of my brain is, um, picking, talking to jury members, ten percent. I'm like, where is my victim? Is she, you know, I, I can't, I can't even really text my investigator because I'm talking to a jury. Is she going to show up? As a prosecutor, you're terrified that once that jury is sworn in, you have double jeopardy and you can't. If you have to dismiss your case, you cannot yes. bring it forward again. Um, and I was really stressed out. And I that victim taught me so much. By the way, she eventually came in um, the, the following day. We were able to extend our jury selection till the end of the day and she came in the next day. But she taught me so much because this, I 
incorrectly assumed that this trial was so important, right? To hold this guy accountable. We must be heroes for this. She must think we're heroes. We're doing all these things. She was like, I have all this other stuff going on. I have problems with my kids. I have problems getting groceries. I have problem, I, had, I have childcare issues. Coming to trial was the least of her concerns, especially since she had been raped 20 years ago. Like you said, 20 years ago. She's like, I can imagine. I learned what I learned from her is like when she said to me, why should this be my top priority now? I was like, you're absolutely right. I have I have no good reason for you other than I want to hold the person that did this to you accountable. Um, and so listening and understanding that our victims, especially our vulnerable victims, and all victims, really, they have so many other things going on in their life. And understanding that and making sure that you can communicate in an authentic way, right, to victims that I get it. Uh, I get that you have other things going on. I'm we are here, by the way, you have a team here, you have victim advocacy, you have prosecutors, you have investigators. We're going to do what we can to help you with those other things. We're going to now help you try to find resources, which I don't think people were probably doing in the 90s, is saying, okay, you're going to come and meet with your prosecutor, investigator, and victim advocate, but you're also going to find out how to find food and shelter and all these other things that you may need. Those things are important. To follow up, I think in terms of the research and some of the stuff that the prosecutor Weston is talking about, we did do research um, on their on the victim advocacy on their task force, and the lessons learned from that. What you know, what's working well, what isn't working as well, what could other jurisdictions do, and several of the things that we noted in that the sort of speaks to that is the importance uh, of having a multidisciplinary team and better supporting survivors. So. Traditionally, it's like a handoff in the criminal justice system where you, you know, a police and then a prosecutor and then and then there's really nobody to support the victim in that. And the system, you know, there's trauma there. There's other things going on. There's a likely avoidance from the victim of not wanting to rehash or talk about such a terrible thing in front of a group of people or even have to think about what happened. Um and so there's a recognition there though in a multidisciplinary team of like we each have our role we know what that role is mary's role as a prosecutor is to help you know is to to get a conviction from that and help support the survivor in that but her role isn't just to support the survivor as part of it but it's really you know she has a role as a prosecutor police have a role in investigating that case victim advocates I think is the important contribution that they're at the table the whole time as well is there to support the survivor and one of the things we've highlighted that that her team does very well and I've heard prosecutor Weston mention this in her uh, as a supervisor which is really I think transformative she probably doesn't recognize it but in the larger sense it is transformative where she will say things in her uh, uh, sort of talk about cultural change where she'll say to her team like if a, perhaps if a victim doesn't necessarily want to come to court or, you know, it's like, I'm not for sure. She'll say, well, what have we done to, in, what have we done to make the victim want to participate in the process? Mm-hmm. And while that's a very minor thing, it seems like it's a minor thing. It's really transformative of like, as, as you said, it's like that case taught you of like, oh, this was not her first priority. This may be my priority. And, and, but 
really what have we done to help make this process easier for her so we can maybe get her child care we can get her rides to the courtroom we can help have a survivor or victim advocate in the courtroom for her um during the trial or you know whatever kinds of things of like but what have we done to show the the victim that we will support them in this process and that is really i think transformative because once there's better support for that you're going to get more convictions um you're going to get more engagement in the process and you know then you're getting sexual offenders off the street you're making community safer all those sorts of things and so um victims play a key role in this and we've placed too much of a burden on them to 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 do this and so looking at at, uh, the work and the research that we've done on lessons learned from the unit that is one of the main ones of like you know uh, of how to really transform how the system responds to and supports victims in that even the most minor thing of or what seemingly is minor of like what have we done to 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 in, to encourage participation instead of of course they would want to participate we're doing this for them on the contrary, it's like, of course they would not want to participate. What have we done, right? So, of course you went to her house and, because uh, I hear this all the time, right? Of course you went to her house and she didn't answer the door. Okay, why would she? Okay, so uh, here comes her investigator to talk about her sexual assault again. I mean, let's assume that they don't want to talk about that and work from there, that they don't want to relive this trauma and work to mm -hmm. get them, or what can we do to make them comfortable on some level telling us what happened to them 20, 10, 20 years ago? Mm -hmm. I mean, now our cases aren't as, aren't that old anymore because we thankfully dealt with the statute really? limitations going forward. But it is on us. And Dr. Lovell has, has heard me say that to people. Well, what have we done? What have we done? And what, what more will we do? Because mm -hmm. this case is not getting closed. We're going to keep we're going to keep working on yeah. it. I think it's really important to have that type of trauma informed response. Prosecutor Weston, what is the number one thing you hear from victims that they want from your office? Um, That they want. I think that they don't use the, I think that it's more common that victims don't use their words to tell us exactly what they want and we have to kind of hear them in other ways because I think what they want from us is to be believed. Um, but I often don't have a victim saying, um, please believe me. It's said in terms of nobody believed me before. Um, why should I talk to you now? Uh, I've heard that so many times and so but to me, that means they're telling me I want to be believed. I want you to care about this case. I want to be a priority. I want my family to know this happened to me. You know, you know, like I can't even imagine uh, reporting a sexual assault, have it forgotten, and and then to have my support system, which is like my family and friends, look at me like, well, if they didn't care, maybe this didn't happen. I don't, you know, like I kind of think it's a ripple effect. Like you need to you know believe your victims listen we all know that there are false rape reports and we all know that the rate of a false rape report is about the same rate as a false robbery or burglary burglary report so this research suggests but i can't imagine a burglary task force starting by being like i don't know i mean did they leave what did they do to get their house burglarized you know, <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah, right. they must have been asking for it or you know um so it's important to kind of look at our cases like that okay so what happened listen to what happened um and and to to get back to your point dr white not even really expect your victims to tell you what they want but to give them what they need and to kind of look at other ways that they are telling telling you in not so many words 
you know, what they need in order in this case. Because what they really want is to be believed, to have the person held accountable, and to and to feel justified. You know, terrible thing happened to them, and I think all victims know that's never going to go away. Uh, that's never it's never going to disappear. But to be to be believed and have the per- have the person that did that to that to them have their comeuppance, right? Mm-hmm. Have them have to face that. I think is what's important to victims. We have one of uh, uh, there's a chapter in the book written by a survivor um, survivor of sexual assault and a survivor of the backlog from New York City, and uh, she uh, Natasha um, and she writes very ele- she's now turned uh, that terrible trauma into advocacy and she works uh, and actually worked with then uh, President Bi- uh, Vice President Biden to start the sexual assault kit initiative so she has been really transformative in in getting justice for hundreds of thousands of survivors and getting their kids tested um, but she talks about that and it was very important to us to also have a chapter from a survivor in that and so she talks about you know the it was eventually tested it, they it didn't there wasn't a hit to something and then the guy committed another crime in another state went into the database and then she talks about when she gets notified about that and for her the the thing that wasn't omnipresent for her wasn't I have to make sure this guy gets a long conviction sentence that was sort of like sub secondary to she said I always just wanted a name like I needed a name I needed to to have a name. He needed a name in my mind, right? So, like, what her priorities were were not the same as what a prosecutor. And and, and that's normal, right? That she was like, I need a name. I always wanted a name. And she felt immense guilt for the the 10 or 15 years her kit wasn't tested uh, because she thought it wasn't solved because she didn't remember what he looked like enough. She remembered the gun um, that was pointed at her. But she didn't remember his face and didn't provide. So she says that she carried all this guilt for so many years about how she had failed and surely he was out there raping other people. And if she had only remembered better, if she had only like been a better victim in a sense, then the case, that it was her fault that the case wasn't solved. And so she assumed her kit was actually tested. And so when she did get that name and they were like, you know, it's nothing, it wasn't because you were like a quote bad victim, right? Like it, it, that had nothing to do with it. Then she felt this, that guilt she talks about, like just evaporating almost because, and that's what she had been carrying. That was her center of, of, of doing that. So I think knowing about, you know, that there's multiple people in this and they each have different priorities and that, Mary, I think you astutely say, sometimes the response from survivors, and I've interviewed many survivors as part of this as well, for research, they will they will say, you know, it's like they don't tell you, they show you through actions of and primarily avoidance actions and other sorts of things, but, um, but that's but that is the response that you should be expecting, right? Like you shouldn't necessarily think that someone would want to tell you a stranger the most intimate thing, terrible thing, the, the, the worst day of their life, right? right? You know, I'm a stranger to them the first time, right? Meet, and it's I'm expecting them to tell jury members, right, in front of a jury that they don't know who they are and a judge. I mean, 
it can't be easy. And that's a kind of transformative change that's kind of been captured in some of the book, holding systems accountable, as well as, you know, really saying, we, we, we flipped, we've, we flipped this the wrong way and said we should be more victim centered. We should learn more about a trauma response and what was perhaps seemed to be deception prior is really a trauma response. Like sometimes victims won't have any affect no emotion sometimes they laugh sometimes they make they remember weird components of the not weird but like you're like fragmented fragmented memories like yeah she remembers like natasha you know i just remember every moment of the gun i remember every aspect of that gun but that's what was pointed at her face like her head so like of course that's what her brain would focus on less about the face and you know what he looked like because his face wasn't the immediate thing that was uh, you know threatening her life so um learning more about those sorts of things is which is which is happening across the nation around training and things like that so i think lots of people are getting more of that training so that's very insightful to have and to include that chapter from a survivor um to share what their experience is with mm-hmm. the system because some of the things that she shared was even surprising to mm-hmm. me because again you don't expect some of the things to hear some of the things that they express so dr lavelle what are future policy initiatives what types of policies do you think would be most monumental for pushing your efforts forward so we do have a chapter as well written by the Joyful Heart Foundation, um, which is the major organ- national organization who's leading the charge in terms of rape kit reform. It was started by Mershka Hargitay from uh, Law and Order SVU. And they actually have, in terms of massive change and what people can do, um, it, the, they have a, what they call a six-pillar um, policy reform. So that, that's certainly a big part of it is like mandating legislation and saying you have to test the kids. You have to make sure you there's a way, f- there's a tracking system for the kids so they can't be shelved and no one remembers. There has to be, you know, money allocate, <clears throat> con- excuse me, to continuing that. So certainly there's a component of policy and statewide change. Um, but I think on the, the other research the, the, the focus of this and m- the work that I've been working on around policy is A, emphasizing the importance of this, um, but uh, there's, you know, mandating training um, is another important component of this that's not part of the legislation, um, mandating training for both police and prosecutors. Um, it is to, um, to have a, a sort of mechanism for accountability um, if you were trying to see how many cases lead to a prosecution from a reported rape, there's really no way to, we've done it and it's extremely labor intensive to try to figure out, here's a report, what happened with that case down the road, um, even in Cleveland. And so we've been working, and and so there's also a chapter from uh, Washington State is actually mandated legislation that requires case reviews and some sort of mandated uh, component to see how far along cases are moving so that there is some monitoring of the policies and practices in the state where it's like, you know, you can't just 
kill a you know you can't just like not move forward with things like somebody is going to be monitoring this and you have to participate in this through legislation so i think some of the work that they're doing um i think there's some uh i would really love to to do more work on this there's some beginning work around um sex offender management courts which seem to be really effective but haven't been replicated in many places but been working to try to see if we could get something like that in Cleveland where it's less about the registration and more just about managing the the offender um, and uh, less about you know like I said the sort of public you know I, I don't do research in the offender management uh, the registration but in terms of management um, where the victims can come on a certain day judges are trained in this prosecutors probation officers, you have that multidisciplinary team and they're working to sort of make sure that these offenders are, are you know, um, getting the help that they need if, if, if they want it, um, but also that the people in their lives you know, might have protective orders against them, that they're making sure that all those sorts of things are in place so that um, they, they, they are monitored. Um, uh, so I think there's some encouraging work around that being done. And Prosecutor Weston, what words of wisdom do you have for jurisdictions that have not prioritized backlog mm. kits? The biggest takeaway that I would share with other jurisdictions is how many serial offenders that they're going to identify. It's not uh, a happy thought, but uh, there are when we tested our kits, I want to say in doctor level, you may know it was like between a third, between a fourth and a third were. Uh, what we would call, we, they would link to other kits. So, um, so many serial, I mean, you can see me making notes through this thing. I'm thinking this serial offender, I'm thinking this serial offender. And um, that those are huge crime waves that, that you, ha if you haven't tested your kits, those people are probably still out on the streets unless they got caught along the way and maybe they're in for a little bit of time. Well, you better find out before they get out. There are, it's almost like a goldmine of information that you are not uncovering if you don't test the kits because those, I'm telling you, I get so excited. CODIS match letters are like my bread and butter. I love CODIS match letters more than life. But <laughs> you get these CODIS match letters, it's like, it is so fascinating that these, the same person's DNA is on all these different wow. crime scenes. It is eye-opening. And then if you look in, like we've talked about, um, another thing we've learned is not, not every crime is the same MO. Like, you know, people, uh, really predators, what we've learned, are more opportunistic than um, stuck in some sort of... Um, what's the word, like a pattern. But those um, those serial, serial offenders would make it worth the cost of admission to test your rape kits and get, get these people off the streets because they're not even just committing rapes. They're committing other crimes. They're causing major havoc and harm in your community. Dr. Lovell knows more it knows about the economic impact, too, of testing your rape kits. So it's like if you're not even interested in testing your rape kits for the right reasons for victims, test it because it will save money for your community, like millions of dollars, because these people that if you prosecute them now, you're stopping this a pattern of crime, the research shows, in the future. As my biggest takeaway to tell people to test their rape kits. Mm -hmm. That's a huge and follow takeaway. up on them, right? You got to test oh, them, but that's and you true. Gotta, you you got to follow do up something. on them. Just testing them is not going to be enough, yeah. right? You got to prosecute. Well, Doctor Lovell and Prosecutor Weston, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast today. This has been a fascinating discussion. Can you please share um, information about resources for our audience? Um, 
if they've been sexually assaulted, if they've know someone who's been sexually assaulted, if they're a survivor who needs counseling, where would you recommend they go or talk? Um, so I w- uh, there is a national hotline uh, for people who might be listening to this. And one of the things I actually teach in my victimology course is that you know, forget all the victimology stuff that's important and I'm not saying Cleveland State that that's not important to teach but if I if my students could walk away with one thing it would be please get information and training on a trauma-informed response to sexual assault because you or to trauma in general because you will be associated with someone you will know someone who has been traumatized um, sexually assault human trafficking something you will know those individuals and so it's very important to have a trauma-informed response back to that. I believe you. I know you, you don't, you know, those kinds of things. There's lots of information online about a trauma-informed response to disclosure. Usually that makes a massive difference in how those individuals are able to process. As, as Prosecutor Weston mentioned, if no one believes you, how much, how much harder it is to overcome the victimization when you don't feel believed in that. So everyone should be trained in how, and it's a very easy sort of stuff of the things to say, the things not to say, and how to, to, to provide resources. But there isn't, uh, for people who might be listening, and this is, this is um, you want someone to talk to about this, there is the National Sexual Assault Hotline, which is uh, 24-7. Um, it's 1-800-656-4673. So 1-800-656-4673. And then um, if you're local and wanted to follow up with... Um, I mean, there's a, a lot of resources even on Cleveland Rape Crisis um, website, which is clevelandrapecrisis.org. Um, that would be, I would believe that would be the resource for, for our local really Clevelanders. Outstanding. Thanks again, Dr. Lavelle and Prosecutor Weston. That is all for today's podcast. We hope you will tune in next time. <laughs> Thank you so much for having us.